Hello everyone, welcome to Ale of a Time. This week we are chatting to John Salton from Brick Lane Brewing, the head brewer at Brick Lane. He's been part of the, the brewery since the start and right now Brick Lane is undergoing a lot of expansion there. I think they're tripling their uh, capacity to brew and adding all sorts of fermentation space. Uh, for people that sort of don't know Brick Lane, they, are, they produce their own brands but they also work with a number of other breweries and brands to produce other beer as well. Uh, they're probably, if not the largest, that, that's doing that at the moment in Australia. We kind of want to know more about the, the beers that John is brewing out of Brick Lane though. They've got some really interesting new releases and they're always up to something out there in Dandenong South in, in Melbourne. Uh, really good chat and it's a really it's always a pleasure to listen to John speak about beer and all sorts of things. He's uh, really passionate and, and knows so much. So uh, it's always, as I said, a pleasure to have him on the show and yeah, hopefully you enjoy it as much as we did. there dave how are you going very well only visual cue of tonight is that i saw the recording uh light come up and the timer has started okay uh yeah we've, we've gone away from video this night and, and hoping of better quality did you did i hear a beer open there dave is that you? you did hear one from me you certainly did what did you just open I have just opened up and poured myself a uh, Sidewinder Hazy Pale Super hey. Ultra Low Alcohol from Brick Lane Brewing. And that is you know a... what? That might uh, conveniently lead us into our guest. How about that? Well, before we do, that's an awesome coincidence because I've just opened a Sidewinder Hazy Pale no. Super Ultra Low Alk from Brick Lane Brewing. Uh, it's almost like they sent us some beers the other day. It's very, very uh, spooky, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's welcome our guest, John Salton, uh, from Brick Lane Brewing. John, I, I should have probably looked up your title before we start. What, what is your official title there? Yeah, head brewer on the business card, whatever that means. Oh, that's so easy then. Okay, I could have guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you might have had something, you know, executive project manager brewer or something. Yeah, yeah. We try and minimise that sort of stuff around here. I, I already get enough imposter syndrome as the, the head brewer, let alone something as, as overblown as, you know, supply director or something like that. So try and keep it fairly simply. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the, the fun cutesy titles i'm really against those so it's a fine line isn't it you know you, yeah. you, i don't like the yeah the 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 grand wizard of stuff and like yeah. <laughs> overly um corporate kind of uh yeah vp of of um of key special project of uh you know this sort of stuff either so it's a yeah, it's a fine line to work head, head brewer um fits me relatively nicely i reckon i think the only like nonsense one that i ever really enjoyed was um uh, Yeasty Boys with Sam and Stu. I think they were the creative director and the directive creator. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that was just, nice. That that walks that line. That makes uh, yeah. you know that, that that does a that's pretty good. Not overly twee, and uh, you know it's it's nice. It's um it's very Yeasty Boys. It feels like. Just before we start, um, shout out to everyone that's currently in lockdown. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's yeah. pretty grim out there. Um, I think we all know how. 
awful it is seeing the numbers come in every day uh, and just feeling hopeless. So hopefully everyone in Sydney's feeling, uh, I don't know, a, a little bit good at the moment. And hopefully you can enjoy this chat. It's a little bit of escapism, maybe. Yeah, perhaps. Hopefully they can find something to, um, I don't know, occupy themselves that's uh, productive. And yeah. Both Dave and I have sourdough tips if you need them. Oh, as many as you need. Dave at aleofatime.com uh, for those. Please. Um, John, can you tell us about the uh, the hazy pale that we're drinking? Yeah, it's, it's a brand new one for us. So, um, you know, over the past 12 months, like like probably a lot of people, we've been watching this this phenomenal sort of explosion of um, low and no alk beer. Um, and we're, we're making a great deal of it as well for, for a number of people. And, um, and uh, you know, for, for me it's always been something that's – I've always been attracted to, I guess, beer styles um, that, uh, that present some sort of technical challenge, you know, that are, that are difficult in some way, shape or form. Um, what, what beer isn't, I guess, you know. <laughs> there's, there's each, um, each sort of style has its own challenges. But, but low and no out for us has been a real focus over this past – over this past twelve months or so, and we've 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 done a bunch of them for a number of different customers, um, no Brick Lane ones until now, um, and we've we've played a lot around with say um, special raw materials, special innovation in kind of brewing techniques, um, uh, some some stuff on the on the yeast side, some some special yeast strains, and uh, and we got to the point where we thought, hey, we'd really love to do one of these we want to do it a little bit differently probably to them some of the some of the others that we're producing probably a bit of a um, bit of a risk in that it's not the sort of the pre-established category of 0.5 percent which which ticks the box for sort of sale in non-licensed channels you know in grocery or in um in other unlicensed venues but that extra that extra 0.51 percent um, just gives you as a brewer so much more creative leeway to do interesting things in the beer and yeah really keen to get your feedback on them because they've only just made their way out there into the wild now we've got um, big plans for this brand I think that's an interesting point John because um, that extra sort of half a percent to play with it really does add a lot I think particularly in terms of mouthfeel um, because I think unless you were really critically thinking about it, if you were given the beer without uh, being told what it was, yeah. I don't think I would really say that it was a low alcohol beer. It's got that, um, yeah, extra extra element of mouthfeel, I think, that um, a lot of the lower alcohol offerings don't have. So I think you've done a great job. Yeah, Ripper, that's, that's the challenge, I think. You know, like, um, you know, going into this, like I said, we've made a hell of a lot of low alcohol beer where what we're packaging at the moment actually and um what we're, we're doing a lot of this week and it's 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 gone from a sort of a um uh you know an insignificance i guess in the craft beer market to something that's now a real force to be reckoned with there's a whole bunch out there and um and on the flavor front yeah you know the bad old days of blowout beer being like overly watery or having some glaring fault the big one that i could never tolerate was wortiness you know um beer that had gone through some sort of um limited or arrested fermentation process or a cold contact process or one of these other sort of older school techniques and and they always just struck me as a bit like malta you know or a bit like um sort of like just carbonated wort or um and, and you know, I found that super off-putting. I found it really, really horrible. And 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 like you say, it's it's you know so much beer flavour or so much of what we associate with the 
the sort of the essence of beer comes from fermentation itself. So how the hell do you get that in the beer without getting ethanol in there, without getting alcohol in there? And that's what we're then sort of trying to crack with this one. And and by giving us that that little bit of extra um, headroom to get a tiny bit more um, ethanol in there, we also get all the other wonderful flavours associated with real real beer, you know? So like... Um, uh, um, those higher alcohols, um, esters, uh, you know, all those compounds that um, that, that make beer beery. Uh, if I cast my mind back to the, maybe five or six years ago, maybe even longer, um, the Pilot Light beer that you brewed at Bright, yeah. um, which was around 2.5%, is that accurate? Yeah. I, I'm going to go with 29 uh, I think so, casting my... Casting my um, mind back through the um through the fog of fog of time yeah yeah it, it would have been around that yeah i mean i've I'm, I'm a fan of these sort of beers that one was a bit more modeled on i guess a an english mild you know much much maligned but um because i'm well, professionally untrending myself it's a style i really like to drink <laughs> um uh you know a bit more modeled on that whereas this is you know this is well and truly in sort of you know hazy pale ale territory the the, the sidewinder but yeah the, these styles have always interested me i reckon um, is, it, is a hazy pale um was that a uh selection for style based on its current popularity or was it also to do with the fact that it's got a couple of extra elements to um impart some flavor on the beer for yeah a bit of column a bit of column b so um so it's a style probably more the latter to tell you the truth in the former um we we tend not to um um uh, trend um hunt too much because you know in a bit of a bigger brewery we're a little bit slower i guess we take a little while to get ideas off the ground you know because once we launch these things we we need to really um takes a while to, to to get the ship into gear you know what i mean so um, this one, it's, it's, it's the brief was, or I guess the idea was let's pick a beer style that we think suits this more than any other. And, and hazy pale ale is great because there's this, a, there's this added texture, I guess, from all those things that make hazy pale ale hazy in the first place, you know, mm. the, the higher levels of protein, the, um, you know, sometimes the, the inclusion of yeast in the final beer, you know, these things that give the that give the beer more more fullness and more palate weight to offset the kind of the the potential hollowness or emptiness of low alk styles and the, the hops really help as well I think. What's the um in terms of processes and even availability of ingredients now compared to you know brewing a, a two point five percent one um, ten years ago? Is there is there a you know is it easier to do now um, than it was back then? Yeah, a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, so not only in terms of um, access to ingredients, but but probably a lot more people have been at it for a lot longer now as well. You know, um, alcohol-free beer, especially alcohol-free craft beer or low-alcohol craft beer is, is, you know, like I said in the past, gone from a curio, you know, something that a couple of people may have done in different markets around the world to being a, a pretty significant um, segment now and you know as brewers do we talk about it you know and we share ideas and share ways of doing this sort of stuff and so I, I see what colleagues are doing in say the states or in Europe or in South America um, and uh, you know I can I can now I guess borrow a lot more from those um, those techniques of those guys or those learnings of those people over the past 10 years that's probably the biggest change I think rather than access to say, new raw materials or new yeast. This stuff's been around for a while. 
it's just that I think the knowledge sharing is is out there a lot more now and and, and you know we're we're involved in actively sort of developing some of that knowledge and for sure we're absolutely the beneficiary of some um, some um, some learnings from others as well. You mentioned um, just the the size of Brick Lane and you know having to sort of be able to back something into market uh, through development and I was thinking about that when I was drinking your other beer that you have just come out with the um, Avalanche Hazy IPA. Uh, is that the second iteration of that? It's the it's the third actually. Third. So, yeah. So I guess the, the shtick with this brand is that um, the work stays the same year on year out. Uh, the the slot on the shelf, you know, with all of our um, retail partners, you know, fingers crossed, stays the same year in year out. But the hops change seasonally, and we we change the the color of the packaging. So the design more or less is the same, and it's uh, it's the third iteration now. We're on the blue one now, so we've had. The, the green avalanche, the yellow avalanche, and now onto the the blue one, which is um, a real focus on New Zealand hops in this um, in this one. Um, but uh, yeah, the the idea is to keep to keep it fairly fresh that one. And those um, there'll be there'll be new iterations of that um, of that avalanche brand brand um, cycling in over the next um, over the next uh, couple of years as well. I um, those kiwi hops. I really enjoyed that one. Oh, sorry, are you there, Deb? Just with, with those New Zealand hops, is that a much different um, flavour profile from the previous versions? Well, for yeah, I, I reckon it is for sure. You know, um, we we keep the hopping rates um, in the same ballpark, but we'll, we'll, we'll change them depending on what we, you know, what sort of characteristic, I guess, we want to tease out of the beer. But this one for me is um, is way more herbaceous than the others. Yeah. You know, it's got that kind of that really green character None of none of for me none of the diesel nature you sometimes get from um, from New Zealand hops, but but yeah, melony and herbaceous and green more than anything else, and it's um, I reckon a real counterpoint to the previous to the previous couple. Um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Because I was I, it made me question if I'd even had the previous versions of it because I was like I'm sure I have, but this is such a different beer. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's um, yeah the the hops change hugely, and it's. Um, it, it's not we're not the first in the world to do this. It's pretty. Um, I can think of a very big uh, certain um, Japanese-owned brewery in Australia who's been at this very game for a while with one of their with one of their pale hoppy beers. Um, but uh, it, for us, we wanted each one to be not just a small tweak or a small iteration, but yeah, but but pretty sort of strikingly different from the one that came before. So um, yeah, it, each one gets a gets a whole new reformulation basically, and this one's really. Really heavy on a whole bunch of these New Zealand hop cultivars, which are often um, annoyingly like hen's teeth to get, um, as you probably heard from lots of brewers in the in the past. You know, there's such a wonderful and unique, I guess, globally um, a unique sort of breeding program in New Zealand. Some amazing flavours that just are unlike any other hop um, grown elsewhere in the world. And so um, it's fun to – we don't use a lot of them in a lot of our, um, say, our core skews, but we love playing with them in things like this. So, uh, yeah, that thinking about I had two of them um, pretty much back to back the other night. They were, they were really good. They really hit the spot. Um, but yeah, it I almost got almost like a, a wine like character, white wine grape, uh, melon, and maybe like lime, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I, I could almost see the, the, the some of the reviews online of people expecting the big American hops of a hazy, mm-hmm. you know, or the the citra and the um, mosaic hazies that that. You know, pretty much where everyone goes towards. Um, 
And it's kind of, yeah, I, and then it got me thinking about sort of hop contracting for you guys or, or the volume of hops that you need to sort of produce something. Um, you know, does that have does that dictate what you have to brew of the volume? You mentioned the New Zealand hops are hard to get. You know, there's some that you'd love to use, but you just can't, you can't get enough of them? Yeah, absolutely. Around the edges for projects like this, like Avalanche for us, we, we're lucky enough to, to make a, a fair whack of it, but it's not, say, um, at the same level as One Love is for us. You know, that's our real sort of core hero skew. Um, and, um, and as a consequence, I don't need to think as hard for example, about the use of New Zealand hops in in something like in something like Avalanche, um, you know, we we may produce um, you know uh, we may produce it for a fairly short period for three or four months, and then and then go into the next into the next hop blend basically for the next color as that as that sort of cycles in and out. So that gives me a good degree of freedom because I don't necessarily th- have to think about okay, um, I need to plan um, to say procure this hop for a you know, a brand that might have a, um, uh, you know, a, um, a, a serious growth trajectory or something that I need to brew, brew exactly the same way for the next two or three years. So for these ones, for, it's not really a seasonal, but let's say these rotational ones that, that sort of change out, change in and out for us. It's where we can really have a lot of fun and play with some cultivars that we, we otherwise wouldn't even consider putting into, say, some of our core skews because of some of the not just scarcity of them, but I guess a little bit also risk. You know, like if you if you build a, a, a big national brand around a hop that's grown in one single place that, you know, uh, if there was a big fire or a big hailstorm or something like this would um, would suddenly disappear, you know, you, you, um, you are opening yourself to a fair whack of, um, fair whack of risk there as well. Um, you also mentioned, uh, oh, you said that... It, this is brewed, you know, each avalanche is brewed multiple times. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, cause, which is interesting because I think in the past we, or the last episode we did, Dave, was it last one we did? We talked about how when packaging changes or you kind of, for consumers, you're looking on shelves and you're going, oh, I know that sing- single release came out, you know, two months ago, so I'm probably not going to get that over this yep. one that just came out. Yeah. Yep. Um, whereas avalanche, I would have, in my mind, that's probably only brewed once, so it's interesting to hear that it's, that same can will be brewed again a few times. Yeah, for us, it's all about freshness, really. You know, so um, while you can, um, you know, we could probably produce the entire demand that we that we're sort of anticipating for this um, for this one until the next one comes in in one in one or two productions. You know, in one or two sort of um, brews. Uh, it's better, I think, for freshness to spread it out a little bit. If this is going to be in the market for, for, um, for say, four months or five months, better not to drop it all right at the start of that time but um, do smaller productions more often and keep it topped up and fresher. And if there's any question, just check out the bottom of the can. You can uh, well, I think that's the other thing. If anyone's savvy enough to know when a particular can came out, they're probably also savvy enough to know that if they have a look at a um, date stamp, they'll get the exact information they want. Yeah. I don't see. I don't think I'd check. I'd just assume because, you know, talking about being close to so close to the market, you're like, oh, I know when that came out. I know when that came out. So single releases. So yeah, that's that's really interesting to know. Um, I, I won't. I'll I'll check the dates now from yeah. for McLean. Yeah, I think it's when when those windows like this will be out there for 
you know, um, four or five months, you know, when those windows start to get that long, we, we love these beers when they're super, super fresh, right? And so rather than create it all at the start of that window, we, we like to, to do a couple basically. And that way it's, um, it's it generally sort of um, our supply chain is pretty good with all FIFO stuff and, and, and the old stuff flushes through fairly quickly and um, the market's kept with, with better, fresher beer. So I think that's a better outcome for the, for the consumer in the end, I reckon. Yeah, it makes Absolutely. a heap of, a heap of sense, especially if um, I mean a lot of the a lot of like single release beers now. Like if you miss it on your first time shopping for it, um, you you might not see it again uh, ever. So if someone picks up your beer, enjoys it, and then in a few weeks' time wants to try and find it again, or a few months' time even, yeah, um, yeah being able to still get a fresh. We do, we do it for everything. So there's, there's plenty of other, say, single release, like true single release things we do as well, um, you know, that are really just in and out, you know, that are brewed once and then that's it. They're, they're not available anymore. This one, Avalanche, is sort of, um, it's available year-round in a colour. Um, uh, and, um, and yeah, we just, we, we, we sort of work our supply plan to make sure it's the absolute sort of freshest beer that's that's out there in people's hands at any given time. But, yeah, we've got a couple of others that are more traditional sort of in-and-out, true um, single, single batches that are made once and then uh, never made again. I think I've got one here, um, which I'm about to open. I realise I don't have a bottle opener with me, so I'm going to have to run and get one. Uh, the Morningstar Belgian Dark Ale. Yeah, bang on, bang on. I'm going to sneak out and get a bottle opener. You so go and do that. Yourselves, just, do that. Just before, um, you, Luke, you, you, you go and get your bottle opener. Before we get on to the Morningstar, John, yeah. you mentioned that um, you don't typically, as a brand, go like style chasing or hype chasing. Yeah. Um, I imagine that equation came into um the calculations when you made the draft beer that you've got there because we oh it must be it's probably a year ago now but we spoke with paul about the about the draft and um it's completely different to anything else on the market really in the same category was that a conscious a conscious decision that you made to brew that particular beer yeah absolutely you know all of them are fairly um, are all fairly, you know, we do a lot of internal thinking about these things. And, um, yeah, a lot of the time, yeah, we, we tend not to to just do, say, um, in that space, uh, um, a another contemporary lager, another flint glass, low a, lower ABV, lower bitterness contemporary lager or something like that. What the, 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 the idea that we landed on and, and the fun thing as well is it's, um, it's pretty collaborative through the company as well. It's not just... Um, something out of my brain or something that a marketer gives to me or something like that. It's a, it's a fairly sort of open round table and we, we talk these out across the different parts of the business, across the sales team, you know, the marketing guys and, and all of us on the production side as well. And, and with draft, yeah, there was this idea of, I, I guess, hearkening back to the beers of yore a little bit, you know, being a little bit more generous, particularly with ABV and with bitterness and with mouthfeel and to, and to make a beer that's also a lager, but that's, that's fairly estuary and fairly kind yeah, of. Yeah. It was very complex. Like for, exactly. for like, yeah. Um, among its peers, it was yeah quite a comp- complex beer. And I think we, we talked about it with Paul, but yeah. uh, I think very generously you guys sent us um, a, a slab each of that. Yeah, and nice. it was, it, it was the perfect, but I mean, it was the ideal beer to get, to have to have that quantity of because 
I mentioned to Luke and maybe to Paul or someone else that we talked to along the way that like by the time I had my like sixth or seventh one over a few weeks, I was like, this is actually unbelievable. Like this is such a good beer to have just in the fridge because it's just got that little extra level of um, yeah complexity and something else that you can you, you, you can just sit back and have a couple watching the footy. But then if you want to think about it too, there's a lot to unpack there as well. Yeah, I'm glad you think so. You know, it's it's one that we, it's sort of, it's surprisingly bitter. It's got a fair whack of bitterness in there. Um, but it's 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 brewed with our, our sort of our house lager yeast that we use in a lot of, in a, in a lot of different products. But we, we, we kind of play with the fermentation and we play with the, um, the, the yeast pitching rates, tank top pressures, these sort of things to really, to really coax out a fair, um, a, a, a fairly kind of um, characterful um, estuary nature out of the beer, which at its best should be you know, like juicy red apples, a little bit of sort of star anise, you know, something that's 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 really interesting. That's all derived largely from the from the from the yeast. Not really um, that spiciness and that that beautiful crunchy red apple character comes comes entirely from the from the yeast, not from the not from the not from the hops or any other source. Well, I was yeah, a huge fan of that one. Yeah. Oh, nice. I came in late to that conversation, but I'm assuming you're talking about the draft. Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, one thing I actually had in my notes to ask that, I, I really make notes before a thing, but I wanted, I really wanted to ask something about that beer because um, it had high gravity brewed on the can. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I thought that was quite remarkable because that's, I guess for people that don't know, high gravity is something that most people associate with the larger brewers and talk about with derision. Um, whereas you got you put it directly on the can, yeah, we, which I we, thought was great. Yeah, we absolutely call it out. Um, and talking about it with derision is probably um, to misunderstand it a little bit as well. I reckon you know mm. it, um, it's it's not done as a well, you know, I, I'd say by some perhaps it's done purely as a say a cost cutting measure, but really it's done by a lot of brewers. Um, um, and I'm talking not just small brewers, but you know, um, big international brewers as well. For for specific sort of flavour and aroma um, uh, um, uh, reasons, you know, for for reasons to actually improve the the um, the the consistency of the beer, but then also to tease out certain aromas and flavours. So so some of that estuary character in that beer is only attainable by the fact that we've fermented at reasonably high gravities, you know. So yeah, you're right, and and. You know, it, it, it used to be, I guess, a, a, um, a point of derision um, and a lot of people would think, oh, high gravity, it's watered down or something like that. And, and indeed, I had a couple of brewers reach out to me and say, oh, I didn't realise it was a marketing term, John, high gravity, you put it on the can. But, but really, I think when you think about it and when you scratch the surface and when you properly understand what we're trying to achieve here or what brewers in general are trying to achieve with high gravity brewing, it's, it's not always, well, in fact, I'd say it's rarely about just making beer cheaper, right? It's, it's generally about achieving a certain flavour outcome, a certain mouthfeel, um, certain fermentation um, 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 dynamics um, that, 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 that make the finished beer taste and, taste and smell a certain way. And that's certainly the case with this draft. If we were to produce this, say, in the same way as we produce um, Brick Lane Lager, um, it would taste and smell like an utterly different brand, you know, and, and, and all that wonderful um, estuary character in particular from the yeast would um, would really be different. It would be expressed very, very differently. Um, I realise we're assuming that the, everyone in the audience knows what high gravity is. Can you give us a quick a quick sort of over overview of what it actually means? Yeah, yeah, spot on. So in the in the brew house, 
um, instead of producing wort of the um, sort of of the concentration required to get the sales strength ABV, you produce um, you produce higher concentration wort. So wort that um, and and uh, that you ferment up at um, uh, you know any um, any percent higher than the than the sales strength, and then subsequently you um, using you know, using um, really, really high quality de-aerated water, that's really critical to the process. So you're not introducing any, um, any oxygen. You, you dilute the, the, the high gravity green beer with de-aerated water back down to sales strength. And, and it gets you a couple of things. One of the, one of the things is it, um, it gets you a lot more sort of flexibility in the brew house. Uh, two, in the fermentation cellar, you're really able to tease out a lot of, in, in this brand in particular, a lot of different types of aromas and flavours. And in, in classical high-gravity brewing, quite often you try and suppress that. So if you if you had a brand that, you know, was a sort of a legacy brand that was brewed at um, at sales strength for, for many years and, and suddenly your, um, you know, your um, accounting department told you, oh, you know, uh, we must expand capacity, you have to brew this at, um, at, at high gravity, you know, brewers would always try and... Um, uh, flavor match and it'd be a real pain and there's been a hell of a lot of research and practical knowledge developed over the past sort of 60 years or longer really um, about getting a flavor match between high gravity um, fermentations and standard gravity fermentations but but that's you know that's um, not always necessary and not even always desirable so brick lane draft in its dna was always kind of formulated to be high gravity. It was always formulated to to really drive those yeah those crunchy red apple um, esters and those those anisey sort of flavours in there from the yeast, which which we find this particular yeast strain we use enjoys producing when fermenting under higher gravity conditions. It's also it also sounds kind of cool. I reckon it sounds kind of metal. I reckon high gravity. <laughs> you know, like I, I think it's the brewing in a circle. Sometimes we know we know um, it's history and everything in this world. But I word, but I think it. I think it also, you know, standing back. I think it also sounds kind of cool. It's genuinely it, like fascinating though. It is interesting as well that that people message you, you know, almost taking a shot at it as well. Um, because yeah. it, it, did, it did surprise me to see on the can. So I think everyone that kind of knows what it is went, huh. Yeah, it was, it was actually my, um, my kind of my, uh, one of my early mentors in brewery who did that. It was uh, uh, Simon Brook taylor who, um, who uh, an old brewer from, from Bass, in, cut his teeth in, in Sheffield. And, uh, yeah, and the guy who taught me um, or who I had the chance to brew with early on in my career at, at Bright. And yeah, he messaged me and said, "Yeah, I didn't realise it was meant to be a marketing term, John." And <laughs> but then I've I've uh, he's messaged me about it about uh, five or six times uh, subsequently. So I think he's uh, continued to buy and drink uh, a fair bit of the beer, which is uh, which is good. That's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> um, how many beers does Brick Lane, as as Brick Lane itself, have in the market oh, at, no, at any one time? I should have told you not to ask me any. Um, uh, <laughs> Any uh, any hard questions like that? It seems like we've got bloody dozens because we, we seem to be doing a lot of bringing out a lot of NPD at any one time and doing lots of things. We've got this this idea of having more or less a, a range of core beers. You know these ones that are available year on year year off. You know the, the whole way through the year. Um, you know wide ranging that we're producing all the time in, in really large volumes. Things like um, One Love and Lager um, that are really central to what we do. Then around them, 
these these um, these recurring sort of beers that that are in and out, you know, um, that are changing things like Avalanche, um, Red Hoppy Ale, uh, um, Supernova. These brands that are available for periods of the year, and then and then uh, the really sort of pointy end, I guess, true speci- speciality things that are that are brewed once, that are um, that are released once, and then um, that uh, that go into the kind of the archives for us. And and I guess it depends on depends on how long it takes for those to move through the through the supply <laughs> chain and into people's and into people's mouths um, uh, I, I did a quick tally um, at the end of the at the end of the year looking back on what we did and and I know that including all of our partner products we did something like 43 um, 40, 43 45 maybe different 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 beers throughout the course of the year. Um, and that's not counting all the different SKUs or the different packaging formats they go into. But I think last year yeah, we brewed 43, not sorry, not different beers, 43 new beers uh, last year. So um, obviously a lot of that's split um, amongst the, the various partner brewers that we work with as well. But a good deal of that is Brick Lane. I think we did a good 12 or 13 NPDs through the course of the year. Need to check. Don't quote me. I'll wait until it's recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's too late. Um, so I'm, I'm just drinking this uh, Belgian Dark Ale Morningstar. Um, it's really lovely, really, really dry, um, nice little bit of sweetness. Um, that came out with another Belgian one, which I can't remember what that was. It was a Garden. triple, I think, was it? Exactly, yeah, the, the, the triple. The whole idea yeah. The whole idea was two that were sort of counterpoints to each other here. You know, a lot of our seasonals we – we try and sort of riff off a theme, you know, and in this one the common thread running through them was the yeast, you know, um, and it was one of my favourite Belgian yeast strains. And uh, we brewed two very different beers with it. We brewed the the the, the um, Belgian Dark Strong Ale, the Morning Star, you know, and then, you know, it's kind of its glorious, light, sort of effervescent, uh, higher ABV but somehow lighter um, partner, the... Um, the Guardian, the Triple, but yeah, these are these are styles I um, that I absolutely love, um, and that uh, and that we love making and drinking. Here. We don't get an opportunity to make too many of them, and I don't think many brewers in Australia do at the moment. But um, but um, I don't know about you guys, but sort of um, I, I love these, and I sort of I've got a lot of nostalgia for a lot of the breweries in the states and here, I guess that um, in the sort of second wave of craft brewing, cut their teeth, producing a lot of really interesting Belgian-style Belgian style beers. How does the um, Australian market respond to those kinds of beers? Uh, well, these ones these ones went pretty well. So these ones, it, it was a fair whack of demand, but I'd say if we tried to morph this into a year-long release or something core, um, uh, I'd say it, it probably wouldn't stick as well, you know. I, and I think this isn't necessarily a Brick Lane thing. I think about some some of the phenomenal um, Belgian style beers that are out there. You know, one of my favourite that's widely distributed, um, White Rabbit White Ale. You know, this 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 phenomenal beer um, that that you know it's it's kind of a travesty, I guess. That there's not more of that around because it's so delicious and so wonderful and so suited to so many occasions. It really is a world class, you know, it is a world class example of its style. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I just don't think it, it doesn't feel like it's doing it for people. What, what do you guys reckon? What's the, what's the, what's the reason behind that? It's something we've talked about at length recently because yeah. Dave's had a bit of a dive into 
Belgian uh, styles. I kind of like um, missed them on my way up the first time. So I never really like explored them that much. So I've just sort of done it recently. And I think your two, when you had released Morningstar and Guardian, that was like right in the time where I was really into it. And I loved them. I thought they were really good. Um, I think personally, I think that uh, I really tend to um, favor the ones that are a little less sweet and cloying a little bit. Um, yeah, uh, because like, I, I find that that sort of like inhibits me going back for a second or third one if they've yeah. got that sort of flavor profile. But I mean, I don't know, there's something kind of magical about them. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I've sort of like figured out what I do and don't like um, in that arena. But I mean, yeah. I'm still just as enthusiastic as I was when I started to get into them. I think the the sweetness thing is a is a key one, right? You know, because I, you know, the 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 guys, the guardians of this style, I guess the you know the the Belgians themselves, or the the you know the the um the um you know the Cistercian dudes who sort of you know do a lot of this stuff. You know, none of those beers are cloyingly sweet. You know, they're all powerful, big, flavorful, ballsy beers. Um, you know, dangerously high ABVs. Um, but all of them are, you know, as they'd say in Belgium, digestible. You know, they're all they're all um, generally, you know, high degrees of attenuation. They're all f- packed full of flavour and packed full of, uh, you know, un- unbelievable um, character from, you know, really unique yeast strains and really unique raw materials as well, um, you know, unique uses of different types of um, beet sugar or, um, or really highly caramelised crystal malts. But, but none of them... Uh, you know, none of the great ones, I don't think, um, are a cloying or a heavy or a sticky or chewy. You know, they're all, they all, that, that's almost, I think, uh, a symptom of some of the American um, pastiches of this style, I guess, you know, um, uh, and none of them survive too long either. I think all the great ones that I can think of um, around the world and some of my favourite are, are generally, yeah, super well attenuated, powerful beers, full full beers, but, um, but, but, something that invites you back for another one and that's never um, tooth coating or um, makes you feel like you're getting diabetes before you finish the, the chalice. And the ones that you have that are like that, you definitely, like they definitely stick out and they're definitely ones that you try and get back to as soon as possible. Yeah, bang on. Exactly. I, I'd love to know, and this is probably completely sidetracked, I'd love to know finishing or final gravities for Belgian beers over the years. Mm. Mm. Um, just thinking of like Lambert breweries and how... You know, they went super sweet to survive, basically. And I think modern palates do go towards sweetness. You know, and I wonder if some of the breweries uh, might be finishing sweeter than they were, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, don't know. That's just something I thought of then. Yeah. Um, this, yeah. yeah. This, on the other hand, though, is, is super dry, really lovely. Do you remember what this finished at gravity-wise? I'd have to look, but it was. Um, yeah. I remember being happy, so it must have been something <laughs> nice and low. Um, uh, whenever you know, whenever we bring new yeast strains into the brewery as well, and you're not brewing with them all the time. This was an old sort of friend I brewed with, you know, um, over many years, um, so I knew how it went. But when you're not working with something all the time, you know, and particularly for challenging fermentation conditions where you know you are sort of pushing the ABV or um, 
um, you know, you're not producing um, many, many tanks that give you um, blending options. You know, you've got to get it right pretty much the first time. And I remember this one being nice and nice and drying out nicely and um, and being right where we wanted it. I'd have to check. The, the other thing that helps is the use of sugar. So another thing that's often maligned, right, in in um, in craft beer circles for whatever reason, but um, completely um, un- um, and um, defensively so, so is is the use of sugar. These these styles are contingent on on the use of a fair whack of of, of sugar. You know, either in the form of um, you know uh, beet sugars, you know, or um, candy 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 syrups. But the, the idea is a, a high you know a fair fair chunk of the total um, fermentables in this beer should be something that's um, really easily and completely fermentable by the yeast as well um, to, to make sure that the body is nice and light and dry um, despite, you know, despite big ABVs. I seem to recall really, really enjoying the Guardian too. Mm, same, so do I. Well, I've, um, I've drunk through my allocation, so I'm um, – <laughs> I, uh, I don't remember. I don't <laughs> Um. Now, I think by the time this comes out, depending on when I get to it, uh, the kind of the Imperial Stout trio will have kind of made its way around the country. Uh, tell us about those. Yeah, this was a super fun project. This was this was great. So, I mean, every brewer loves doing these sort of things, right? You know, um, they're they're the real special thing at the end of the year that you're able to do to have to have fun. I'm I'm quite. I'm sort of, I don't know if I'm jealous because I think if you did it all year round, it would also be a bit of a drag sometimes because it's, it's really hard work and really high touch. But, but, but barrel-aged beers and imperial stouts or, you know, these, these sort of special, let's say, anniversary beers or limited releases, they're, they're really, um, I mean, they're just bloody fun. And anyone who says otherwise is, um, is um, a miserable bastard, I think. There's, there's so much so much fun to, to make these ones. And, and the idea was, or the central idea was, let's just do something stupid and scary, you know, that taps into sort of primal um, um, human fears or um, into kind of existential dread or these sort of things. And we, we, and, and, and we thought, what better way to do it? What would be more scary than a, than a beer with double-digit ABV in a 500ml um, can as well? So I'm not sure how we'll go with um, responsible drinking. I don't know how you can responsibly drink. I think it's – I haven't got one in front of me, but it's five-point something, nearly six standard drinks, I think a couple of these iterations. So they're, they're, it's a lot of beer in a can, share, and uh, – I won't be because I'm I'm locked down, but I'll uh, I'll be <laughs> drinking it by myself. But I'll also be making sure that my um, my um, my path from couch to bed afterwards is clear and unencumbered with any trip hazards. Um, <laughs> but like uh, this was super fun, right? So the idea was um, uh, the idea was imperial stout, which I love making. Um, uh, I, I loved. Um, we had a chance to do a fair few of them at, at Hawkers when I was there as well. Uh, really, really enjoy making these styles of beer and, and don't, you know, only do it a couple of times a year, which heightens the kind of specialness. The idea was a single, a single wort, you know, a single green beer, I guess, you know, a single fermented um, product that was then differentiated by the, by different, different treatments with different, different types of barrels or different types of wood. So um, all three were going to be um, barrel aged or wood aged. And, um, and, and we chose three really different approaches. So two went into um, uh, um, uh, American, you know, first fill um, bourbon barrels um, from Heaven Hills and Brown Foreman. Um, 
the the Leviathan with um, uh, these really special um, organic cow nibs and with um, Tahitian vanilla beans. Again, these really juicy, phenomenal vanilla beans that I nearly bankrupted the brewery buying. And um, and then then the the Abyss, which I think is probably for me not to pick favourites, but it's it's my favourite, and it's um and it's also probably the most I reckon the most unique of the lot. Um, we aged it we aged it on Amberana, which is um uh you know it's it's just so unlike oak. You know it's it's a it's a um, South American type of type of wood that grows through um through um uh, well a great deal of South America, but I, I I'm familiar with it from um what. They use it for in Brazil, which is largely for aging um, cachaça. And I was over there a couple of years ago for, for a beer thing, for beer judging. And 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 after the beer judging had finished, we go out to these cachaçarias and try all the local spirits, you know, all the local cachaça and, and get written off on caipirinhas. And, and the thing that really stuck with me was this unique, I can't say oak, but this unique wood character from this, from this type of indigenous uh, wood, amberana. And it's been used in beer. Um, it's been used in beer in in Australia recently. Even I, I, I had a wonderful um, beer from the guys at Other Side in the Carwin um, um, uh, Christmas um, mix box this year as well. Um, but I, and I've always been wanting to use it myself. And 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 I think the Abyss is sort of a it's a real pure expression. I think of what what Amberana can impart into beer. This gingerbread bready. Um, uh, cinnamony, cinnamon, and gingerbread are the the, the kind of the, the right up the front for me. Followed by probably a little bit of um, uh, a, a herbal kind of thyme like character, maybe a little bit like sort of like thyme or hyssop, and um, and and a fair whack of um, uh, you know actual wood sort of um, tannin sort of structure and and a bit of pencil shaving going on there in the background as well. That'll probably um, change a little bit as the beer continues to age, but. But this one for me was probably a, a really fun one um, because it's, it's part of something I'd like to do more of in the future, and that's playing with, say, non-traditional um, woods in beer um, or non-traditional ingredients in these sort of special high ABV beers. I've just talked nonstop for about three minutes, so I'll shut up for a little bit. That's why we get people yeah, on exactly. the Exactly. You're not here to <laughs> shut up. <John. laughs> do your job, John. Keep talking. Um, I... but that um, that Amberana sounds great. And is that you? Do you use a barrel for that? No, we used we used staves. So we used these long tank staves that we got. So the, you can you can get barrels, but they've been they've they've typically used them after having had cachaca in them. And um, and I decided I didn't really want that because um, uh, I didn't particularly want the. I I, I thought the the amount of time that it's going to spend in the barrel, it's not a huge amount of time, and I'd worry that the that the um, that the um, cachaca character would overwhelm the amberana character. So the idea for me was, um, you know, unused, brand new staves that have never sort of touched any other liquid, so that when people taste this beer, they're getting the the same imperial stout that they tasted in the others in the series, but with this gift from the amberana and from nothing else. And it's so characterful and so wonderful. It's yeah, this. Yeah, cinnamon more than anything else, gingerbready, timey. It's just, um, uh, I, I like it, I think, because it's just so unique. You know, it's just, um, it's unlike any other sort of, um, um, it's unlike any other sort of wood used in brewing. There are a number of others out there, like the, the another big inspiration for me for this one was um, back in the, 
whenever it was the early two thousands, dogfish heads. Um, um, Palo Santo Mara, yeah, exactly. It was a wonderfully uh, unique beer. That one, yeah, spot on. You know, it was it was there was flavors in that beer that I've never I've never tasted or smelt in probably not even beer, but in in food in general, right? And um, and and ever since that, I guess I've been interested in some of these. Um, some of these non-traditional ingredients or some of these things that are well and truly um, uh, used in other parts of the world but um, but not necessarily here or not necessarily in beer. That was that was one that I got my hands on very early in my journey that really made me sort of go, this is a flavour profile unlike anything I've had. This is very, very different and very, very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, I love those little surprises, you know, um, where um, something just sort of um, slaps you in the face or makes you open your eyes and think, "Geez, I, I, I've it's a whole part of flavor space I've never I've never thought yeah. of much before. It's a whole sort of exactly. gamut of flavors that I've never really encountered. I've had it with some um, I've had it with food before I can think of, you know, like with um, um, the first time I remember clearly eating um, when I was in um, probably in high school, like when I first ate. Um, uh, Szechuan peppers, you know, like the numbing peppers, you know, like that, that, that they're not just a flavor, they're a mouthfeel like you don't feel, um, with other foods. They're, they've got this, um, um, almost this, um, 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 uh, anesthetic sort of, um, feeling. They're this numbing feeling, you know, um, and it, it modulates your sense of taste sort of a little bit in a way that it's just unlike anything else. And yeah, I, I love those little, um, those little surprises. And, um, you know, they're always showing up in beer because brewers tend to be, um, really, um, really clever about doing this sort of stuff. Just before we move too far past it, just for anyone that doesn't know, cachaca is a like of, um, it's rum derivative, isn't it? Yeah, basically. It's just, it, instead of being made with molasses, it's just made with cane juice. So right. a lot of that in, a lot of that in, um, in Brazil, as you could imagine. And it goes into making the undisputedly best cocktail in the world. Um, you know, the caipirinha. I, you know, I, um, I know it's uh, it's in a lot of people's mind a travesty to drink anything other than Negronis, but um, <laughs> Caipirinhas, they're, they're pretty much like the, the liquid sunshine they're, and happy times, you know. They're such a, such a nice cocktail and often they're served with fucking out there weird Amazonian fruit that no one knows the name of um, and you've also never tasted Ever so, um, uh, they're they're really interesting, um, uh, really interesting kind of cocktails um, over there. But um, but yeah, cachaça's this this spirit, yeah, um, from fermented distilled spirit from fermented cane juice, and um, um, like like a lot of spirits, you know, there's a great range, of different qualities, and I've um, had the good and the bad. But the the thing that really um, caught my attention was the use of yeah non-oak you know non-traditional sort of oak aging of these ones and just the these unique kind of um chocolatey cinnamony um vanillary or thyme-like um hyssop um um zatarish kind of herbaceous sort of flavor that you can sometimes get in them as well yeah i think the distilleries in australia playing with uh native australian woods at the moment as well i think just thinking about sort of non-traditional woods yeah, um, I've, 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 I'm sure there is. There's a couple of um, people who have had careers in distilling who who work here at the at the brewery, and they've, I, I remember chatting to them about it, and I've forgotten who it was, but I'm, I'm pretty sure people have done some stuff using Australian Australian native timbers as well. Um, 
I've certainly used um, strawberry gum, but not the wood, the leaves in, in, in mm. brewing in the past. But, yeah, there, there's, it's a wild and wonderful world out there and there's so many of these aromatic timbers that are used, you know, either in food or in perfumery or in other sort of sensory kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, um, domains uh, that, that I think would be super, super interesting to use, to use in beer. It's interesting if we if we reflect back on what we've talked about today. There are so many little things that are that we're still learning and still evolving. Um, you know, almost year to year, week to week, and within breweries. You know, your career. You know, the changes of hazy beers and, and how that's changed brewing, um, low alcohol processes, and and you know, looking forward now to people experimenting with wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Never a dull moment. It's um, it it really is a freaking phenomenal um, um, uh, industry to be part of. And and as a brewer on the supply side, you know, I I think how lucky I am really because um, you know, um, apart from innovation and new things happening, um, just the you know the day to day role I think of a lot of people here at Brick Lane is so varied. You know, um. From thinking about and talking to guys like you about about um, uh, trends in beer or flavor or raw materials to um, you know to um, running the process or um, uh, to to being out there on the shop floor, um, which I'm not as much as I would love to be, but certainly have been just before this uh, before this call. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a varied and bloody wonderful wonderful pursuit, I reckon. Um, that probably brings us nicely as we're getting close to an hour as to what is happening at Brick Lane because you're already pretty big. You're already, uh, as you mentioned, you've got a lot of breweries that you partner with to, to create different SKUs and uh, and I understand there's expansion happening. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're in the thick of it. And, in fact, this has probably been um, my big focus over the past 12 months or so. We're in the middle of what we call Project Pearl Jam. It's our big capacity expansion project, named such by by my boss, by Paul, because it must be a perfect ten out of ten. That's where it got its name, Pearl Jam. Um, and uh, and uh, hang on, hang on. I'm going to stop there. This is probably a question for Paul. I know that Pearl Jam have an album called Ten. Yeah. Is that his frame of reference, the only frame of reference he has for 10 out of 10? Oh, he's also a huge Pearl Jam fan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's, that, there's that as well. Um, it's a great album. I mean, I don't, I don't want to knock his, his choice in albums. It's a great one. But yeah. you, know, you, you scratch the surface a little bit and there'll be, there'll be six or seven different reasons behind this, but that's the, that's the one that stuck with me because it was, it was a great name for it, but it was also a veiled threat. John, don't, don't you get this wrong, you know, make sure it, make sure it works well. Um, I hope he's not listening. He will be. Um, but um, yeah, look, it's been a fantastic bloody project. This one, it's we're going. Um, we're we're sort of in the in the, the the guts of it right now. So we've done a couple of little bits already. We've done a couple of small cellar expansions this year. We put in um, uh, um, some more fermenters, and I've upgraded all the utilities through through the brewery. Um, got rid of all the old freon chillers and put in a big, large, much more environmentally friendly ammonia chiller. Um, new boilers, um, all in preparation for what's happening right now. And this is the, the super exciting part, the part that brewers, I guess, dream of doing and I've been super lucky to do a couple. Um, it's the big the big expansion. We're putting in a, a new brew house, which is arriving in just a few days. So it's just sailed from Singapore and it arrives in Port Melbourne on the 15th. So a big, um, we've got a 50 hectolitre brew house at the moment that we brew about eight, eight times a day on 
now and we're, we're really working working its guts out at the moment and so this will give us a hell of a lot more capacity so this one on the water at the moment is a big 100 hectolitre plant that apart from being bigger per brew I can also brew 12 brews a day on and also it's slightly higher wort strength as well for those brands where it suits so it, it really takes um the, the the pressure off the guys who have been working so hard um in my team over this past well since we've started really it's hasn't stopped but this past year in particular where we've got a real bottleneck on work production so beautiful new brew house wonderful new bells and whistles around it as well so in terms of it's been a dream project in that i've just built um um uh, built a dream brew house essentially um a whole bunch of really nice things around energy recovery around um smarts particularly in those areas that i that i really um care about in in, in the, the brewing process in in milling a beautiful new big mill a dry condition mill um six roller mill from bueller going in um very nice louder ton for very very quick cycle times um a lot of attention to how we boil wort in this brew house and a lot of attention to utilities consumption as well because um you know we don't want to also destroy the the planet while we're at it so um a lot of attention to reducing primary energy in the first place and and recovering energy at every at every turn at every possible opportunity through the process so that that arrives on yeah like i said not this Saturday, sunday but the next and then we're madly installing that um parallel to that we've got a big cold block expansion as well so putting in um quite a large new fermentation cellar so 10 10 new 400 hectolitre fermenters um a, a bright beer cellar expansion so so um to well a total of what um 900 hectolitres of new bright beer sort of space um and and the cold block stuff's just as exciting for me as the brew house because we're also sort of moving away from dragging hoses everywhere to sort of more automation in the in the cold block as well so our bright beer cellar will be fully automated means really great quality beer to the fillers all the time no moving hoses around no chance of ever um say um uh, putting the wrong product in the wrong can or um, getting um, getting um, chemical contamination into a product stream. It's all, all automated. Um, and then in the in the in the new fermentation cellar as well, a sort of a, yeah, a a really nice sort of automated solution there as well. That means that the workload for the for the fermentation brewers and for the guys um, running that cellar, it's, it, it's less kind of hose dragging and hard physical work and less risk. Um, and um, and more um, more focus on the things that matter on 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 quality on on process improvement um, and um, it also means that we can eliminate you know a lot of the sources of say oxygen ingress into the process by having the whole cellar um, um, piped up um, hard piped to a series of sort of um, swing bend panels. Um, I think I read this in an article, uh, and I, I can't remember which one it was, so I couldn't find it beforehand, but um, it sort of mentioned the makeup of, of how much you brew versus of your own versus sort of partner breweries. Yeah. Um, okay, like do you, is that something that you guys make public, or is that something that's... Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, like, I'm just, I, like, I don't really have an ulterior motive. I'm just gen- generally curious about yeah, what that, what that probably, split is. Yeah, I think, we, I think we talk about this. It's generally throughout our company's growth, it's been a fairly sort of even split, and we tend to be the, the, the brick lane oh, – sorry, a fairly consistent split, I should say. The brick lane brands tend to be, you know, 35 40% generally of, of what we do. Swings and roundabouts, some months are higher, some months are lower. Um, but, yeah, that, that tends to be the sort of the, the mix. 
and it's and it's really nice like that as well because um, uh, you know we're producing plenty of our own beer. It's not like we're only producing a small amount um, every um, every other week or something like that. So you get very good at making your own brands, but it also gives you um, you're not making just the one brand over and over and over again. You know we've got so much complexity, I guess, in the in the um, in the process side, in the brewing, in the in the brew house, and in the cellars, um, it's it's good and bad. It's really tricky to manage that complexity um, and all the changeovers and changes between brands. Um, but it's also great because it, boy, it keeps you on your feet and it exposes you to on your toes. Sorry, and it exposes you to um, a whole range of different sort of brewing techniques or um, raw materials or approaches to ideas that you otherwise wouldn't do. So that's something that I really value from it and. Um, it, yeah, it can, can be really tricky, uh, a really high brand diversity like this. If we were making just one love only, um, things like scheduling would be a hell of a lot easier and um, procurement and everything. But that diversity is, um, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's also, it's also really fun. Within that, John, um, do all your partners ferment at Brick Lane as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We make the whole lot. That's, you know? Yeah, we make the whole lot. Like, uh, brewing eight times a day and fermenting it all there, that just sounds like such a lot of space required, which I know you have, but just thinking yeah. about that is a, an enormous amount of beer to have on site. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah, so um, uh, and uh, I remember when we first moved in and looking at the site and thinking, oh, geez, how are we going to fill this giant? <laughs> and it's the absolute opposite now. Uh <laughs> Uh, you hear this from so many brewers, regardless of scale, right? From from tiny um, uh, five hectolitre breweries all the way up to um, very very large national breweries. I, the amount of times you hear this same story of uh, oh, um, it's too big. Oh, actually, a couple of years later, I wish I made it a tiny bit bigger. But we're, we're lucky here because we've got a lot of adjoining space as well. So at the end of this year, after the brew house goes in and after the new fermentation cellar goes in, our 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 space under under the roof here, I guess at, um, at at in in our first building is is pretty jam packed. We're pretty full then, but we've got all this space around us. So we've got options on on properties next to us, and we've got this large undeveloped um, what's currently just a car park, which we only require about a quarter of for actual car parking space. That's always had always been there on the site master plan as a as a kind of a um, a warehouse extension, and it. Um, it looks like we're going to be executing a couple of these plans towards the the back end of the calendar year in sort of December January, um, because yeah, um, by then we'll be we'll be truly jam packed in here. You know, it's um, it's um, it's quite cool to see. We're also um, in the ramp up for all this new capital equipment. The other part is um, is the people, right? It doesn't just run itself. So we've mm. been madly recruiting. Um, we've recently moved to. Um, we've been 24 hours in in cellars and brewing for quite some time for a good year now, but it's only it's only been in the past couple of weeks. We've always packed faster, much faster than what we've than what we've um, been able to brew. Um, and ahead of the new brew house coming on, we've just gone to 24 hour packaging to give to give the, the I guess the packaging department time to get their systems and people all embedded and trained up and ready to go for when the for when the new machine switches on because that'll um, That'll mean that they're that they're well full, kept very very busy all around the clock. Sounds like a lot of work coming in your future. 
It's yeah, it is, but it's and in your present, I guess as well. Yeah, it's also bloody fun though. Like honestly, it it is it is um it is a lot, but um um better than the alternative, better than um <laughs> better than <laughs> better than um better than not doing it. It's just it, it's a hell of a lot of fun, and um and this is what I mean about the varied work. You know, I'm sort of in this this project is um, largely you know even though it says head brewer, like we talked about at the start on the business card, I, I I'm 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 surrounded by people who are um, who are excellent at that part of it as well. So the the, the brewing side of things is really it's 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 headed up by a, um, a real genius brewer a guy called Cade Wilson who just does a fantastic job on the the brewery and process side of things. Likewise, on the packaging side, got an excellent guy there who runs our, our packaging operations. Paris, he just does a phenomenal job, and um, and 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 more or less, I'm I'm just looking after some of the some of the um, trying to stay out of their way, largely looking after some of the leadership stuff and and focused on on getting this project away. But it's not just them, you know. Surrounded by excellent um, resources in in engineering and in maintenance, we've got some phenomenal people there in in quality and in running the lab and making sure that the beer is tasting great and is safe and is the same every time. Um, uh, I'm just that that's the other great thing. I'm sort of lucky to be surrounded by all these um, all these um, these experts in their field and it makes life um you know a lot of lot of um you know a lot of support makes the the load um a hell of a lot easier it'd be impossible for any one person i think to do the lot so i'm i'm grateful for all this um all this expertise around me as well um i reckon that's probably a pretty good time to wrap up now you've complimented the team and said nice things about them. Uh, any questions from you, Dave, before we finish? No, no, it just sounds like a really exciting time to be uh, at Brick Lane. Yeah, we'll have to have you guys down and um, check the place out because, um, yeah, it, it it's a pretty exciting – yeah, it is a pretty exciting time here. There's a real buzz, right? Uh, equal amounts of holy shit, you know, um, boy, there's a lot of work to do and and excitement as well. And um, – yeah, it's it's we're right at the business end now. So um, yeah, mechanical installation of this thing starts um, starts pretty much in a couple of weeks' time, um, and then we'll be in project mode right through to the end of the calendar year. Um, and um, love to show it off because we've 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 built something really special here. You know, um, people and plant, um, and it's it's something that I um, that I'd love to show off. So it'd be great to yeah, would love to um, sometime. Love to towards the end of the year. I reckon we'll definitely take you up on that, that one. That sounds terrific. Sure. Um, John, if people want to find you online... We've got a really cranking web store at the moment, which has really switched on for us during um, COVID. And um, we've got we got pretty good at, at running that as well. So you can be sure that if you do buy stuff directly from Brick Lane, um, from our web store, it's all super fresh and um, fresh out of the brewery. Um, but yeah, uh, the other thing is, well, is, um, you know, if you want to support us, I guess after COVID, um, um, we encourage people to get out there when they can into the, into the retail partners, into the, um, into the retail chains and the independent bottle shops out there that have, um, you know, um, that have, um, been fighting for sort of subsistence, I guess, over the past, um, over the past, uh, uh, year, year and a bit, um, during this during this disaster um, and um, support us, but support those guys too who, who need it, um, who, who need it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Dave, where do people find you if they want to get sourdough tips? 
Mate, send me an email at uh, davidaleofatime.com. I'll tell you all about your uh, mixing volumes, temperature, uh, all that sort of stuff. Let me know. I'll hit you up. Excellent. Uh, you can find me at aleofatime.com for everything. Uh, you can check out the Hypothetical Institute uh, if you want to learn about the Wuhan lab leak theories going around and all the other uh conspiratorial conspiratorial issues of the day uh, we're all over it at the moment it's too much work um <laughs> yeah, full-time job for sure yeah i wish it i wish it paid the bills uh, <laughs> <laughs> i don't actually my brain would be cooked if it did um john really appreciate you taking the time to, to have a chat especially given you're still at work dealing with labeling issues as well so um uh, really really nice of you to take the time and chat and um yeah really really excited to see what's what's coming out of brick lane in the future uh, it's my pleasure. Also, I, I just noticed that the minute I, I step away from it, everything works perfectly. So that's probably a good sign I should stay well. <laughs> stay, well stay, out, stay out of it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, guys, thanks, uh, thanks so much for the, the chat. It's great. Thanks so much, John. Yeah.